0: If you'd like to open your Bibles and read with me, we're going to start the first reading um, in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1 to 8. That can be found on page 543 of the Black Pew Bibles. My son, do not forget my teaching. But keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you'll win favour and a good name in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to Him, and He will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. If you can now turn over to James chapter 4, verse 1 to 12. That's found on page 1045. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver giver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbour? This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning. My name is James, one of the pastors here. Uh, good to see you this morning. Let's uh, come now to a time of prayer. Gracious Lord, we thank you uh, that you are not distant, but you've spoken to us in your word, and you want us to know who you are and who we are. And we pray, Lord, as we look at another section on this little book of James in the Bible, that we would not just listen to your word, but we would. Do what it says. Amen. Uh, last year I was at a conference and uh, there was various seminars, various, is this annoying? Is that there? That's me. Oh, it's going to dry. Okay, there we go. Is that good? All right, good. Take two. Last year I was at a conference and uh, there at this conference uh, there was a number of talks, a number of seminars, number of workshops. And there was one thing that stood out to me. One of the presenters said this, the church is more conflict-prone than any other organization, but we expect it to be the least so. Made me think. I can't stop thinking about what that person said. The speaker went on and said, you think about it. A church is a group of people, different ages, stages, cultural backgrounds, come together to do family, to do life together, to be in each other's homes where character is important, where it's all rested on the teachings of Jesus, on the Bible, and we think, nah, there's going to be no conflict here, no tension. We'll just sing kumbaya all day long. The speaker said another point. If you still don't believe me, have a look at James chapter 4, which is where we find ourselves today. Because there, James, who wrote the book of James, looks at the topic of conflict and says that it's been in the church from the very beginning. We're going to look at healthy and unhealthy conflict. We're going to look at the fact that you need to expect it, what to do with it, how to react to it. So as we look through this section on James chapter 4, they're going to look at three different battles, right? The battle within, the battle out there, and the battle to do. Firstly, the battle within. Have a look at James chapter 4. Open your Bibles if you close them. Page 1045. And James begins with this question. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Now, some of you are probably thinking straight away, oh, don't like this. You're the kind of person where tension comes up and you're like a turtle. You just hide. Or you just want to hug it out, right? You don't like any conflict. You're conflict-averse and you think, But James doesn't want to do that, right? He doesn't want to sweep it under the rug. He asks, what causes it? Okay, let's talk about it. Let's acknowledge it. He goes on. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? He's saying to understand why you get angry, why you're in conflict, why you fight, why you quarrel with all sorts of people, you need to look inside, because the battles out there that you're having are largely to do with the battles in here. And so he lists a number of things that are happening inside of us. You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. A couple of things to notice about this unhealthy conflict. Firstly is this. You notice there's a cocktail of disordered desires going on inside of you, isn't there? There's all sorts of things welling up inside of you. Desire, covet, you demand, you ask, you don't pray, but if you do pray, you pray with the wrong motives, some sort of sinful desire wrapped up as a prayer point. I mean, all these things are happening inside of you. The second thing to notice is this. What is the most common word in verse 2? Verse 3, you, you. When we're angry, we tend to blame, don't we? Look what you made me do. I wouldn't be so angry if you hadn't done this. I wouldn't have lost my cool if you were more like this, right? We, we blame and we point, you. But James is saying, no, 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 you. Look to you. Rather than play the victim, be responsible for what's going on inside you and what comes out of you. Another thing you'll notice about what James is saying is he's getting you to do something important. To stop, to breathe, and to ask what is causing quarrels and fights among you. He's not doing it in the moment. He's not getting you to, to in the moment of your angry the fight, to, to reflect. You know, I was a high school teacher and every now and then you have to break up a fight between two guys. And if I went into that moment when they're all fist raging and say, let's just reflect, guys, I'm going to get one to the kisser, right? It's not the time, in the moment. But afterwards, the post-fight debrief, whether you're married, whether you've got kids, whether you're friends, office, church, the post-fight debrief is a very important thing. And that's what James is doing here. He's saying, when you were angry, when you were quarreling, when you were fighting, where did that come from? So what I want to do now is just get you to think about the last time you had a fight with someone, right? And ask three questions. First is this. It's a bit of an unusual question, but hear me out. Does your understanding of what being angry is include you? Or are you the kind of person who says, no, no I never get angry, I never fight? Because somehow your definition of what angry is excludes you. Now, no one else thinks that. Everyone, thinks, everyone knows you, you get angry, you fight and quarrel. But you need to broaden your definition so it includes you, right? All of us who are honest get angry and frustrated and we fight at all sorts of things. So let me ask the question again. Think back to a time when you fought with someone, you argued with someone. Have that in your memory. Second question is this. How did you deal with your frustration? How did you deal with it? You're someone who goes quiet, Passive aggressive brew, let them stew on it. Are you someone that yells and just attacks and verbally insults? Are you someone that looks for the inconsistency in the arguments, brings up past faults, wanting to win? How do you deal with it? Last question is what is the thing that was so important to you that you got defensive? Was it that desire to be in control and that was questioned, so you lashed out? Did you get some feedback and touched the insecurity of yours and so you went for them? Were you envious of someone because of what they had or who they were and you just started to resent them? Were your expectations not being met and rather than praying about it, you just paid them out? Are you frustrated at someone because they're just incompetent, they're slow, they're different. Deep down you just think you're better than them. What, what's going on in here? Because you understand what's going on here, you understand what's going out there. You may have noticed James used the phrase, so you kill. If you do not have so you kill. Now, I don't think that literal murder was happening in that church, right? Back in the day. I do think it's a metaphor, but don't lose the horror of it, even though it's a metaphor. Because most quarrels, most fights that we have, end up, we end up insulting the person, using words we regret. Have a look at verse 11. Brothers and sisters do not slander one another. What does slander mean? It's basically using words to attack, to insult someone, to hurt them whether it's via email, letter, social media, face-to-face. It's using words like, you idiot, you're a disgrace, you're worthless, you're a fat cow, you're a waste of time. Words that attack. Words that kill. They come forth in our mouth. Often to those we are closest to. But the problem, interestingly enough, that James mentions with this, is not what we expect. He doesn't say, don't say these things because it gives bad self-esteem or words wound like nothing else. Have a look at why he says do not slander. Verse 11b, anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but you're sitting in judgment on it. Now what does that mean? He's saying when you put down, particularly a fellow brother and sister, a fellow Christian, when you verbally verbally attack them, you're not only disobeying the law, like love your neighbour, right? You're clearly not doing that one. But when you disobey, you're actually sitting above it and thinking, No, nah, I know better. I hear what you're saying, God, about love your neighbour, I'm gonna do differently. You sit above God and his authority. When you criticise another the member of church, say so you're actually criticising God's authority. When you're harsh with another believer, you actually, the harsh reality is you're just ripping out pages of the Bible saying, "Nah, I'm not going to obey that. I know better. But the reality check is there. What does he say? Verse 12, uh-uh, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy, and it's not you, it's not me, but You. You, who are you to judge your neighbour? Now, judge your neighbour. He's not saying there the way we often interpret it—like there's a little bit of criticism about someone's thinking or lifestyle. So, it's, don't judge, right? It's not that kind of thought. But when it comes to slandering, where you give a verdict on someone's life, like you're an idiot, you're worthless, you're a waste of time, you're ignoring what God has said about that person—that they're loved, that they're chosen, wanted. Saved, forgiven. And I and you have no right to question the verdict that God has given. That's the first battle, the battle within. Let's look at the second battle, the battle out there. Have a look at verse 4. You adulterous people. Whoa, hang on, hang on. He just said don't slander. You adulterous people. Now, before we move on, That phrase comes from Hosea, an Old Testament book. It can mean unfaithful. And it's a word used by God himself to describe his people. James is not saying anything God has not said before, right? And you have to admit, right, this is going to cause a bit of conflict. You can hear them saying, what do you call me? Right? Not all conflict is bad. There is healthy conflict for the sake of growing someone in their faith. For the sake of maturing someone. There is times for healthy conflict. He goes on. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Here's reality, right? All of us in this room, we want to be liked. We want to be loved. We don't want to be seen as dumb, intolerant. There are people in your life who you want their approval for honest, if I'm honest. And because of that, we want to be friends with the world, with those around us. I remember when I was in year three, and there was a guy in my class called Addison. He was cool, I was not but I wanted to be his friend, right? And so you know what I did? I put dirt on my face, because that's what Addison did, and he was cool, right? Addison loved cricket. And so all of a sudden, I in, loved cricket. I hated cricket, but I was into cricket, because I wanted to be Addison's friend. Even we'd do this thing, with undo you, your buttons, and you'd run around the, the, the school, and with your buttons undone, and I did that, because Addison did that. Now, I was doing all these things, changing, changing, why? Because I wanted to be friends with Addison. So bad. And when it comes to this world, we want to be friends with the world so bad, don't we? We change what we do, what we think, to fit in. And we give up following God for following the masses. If your views on sexuality or marriage, if your views on caring for the poor, or the treatment of other races, if your behavior when it comes to alcohol or money or the words you use mirrors that of those around you, there's a problem there, isn't there? If there's no difference to those who are not a Christian and you rub shoulders with them, you're becoming friends with the world and as it says there, as a result, enemies of God. There's two problems, right? When Christians become friends with the world. One's historical, the other theological. Historically first. We, to Christians in this era, forget the past. And so, here's the thing. Whenever Christians, and indeed the church, have gone along with the dominant cultural views of their time, it has always gone wrong. last couple of years, you look at South Africa, Germany, colonial England, when the church gets alongside with the dominant view, it always goes wrong. But somehow we think when it comes to 2019 Progressive Australia, no, nah, we can do it. We'll be fine. We can be friends with the world around us and, the, and God as well. But we can't. It never goes well. You know, when Satan came to Eve in the Garden of Eden to tempt her, he didn't come with a stick or a wad of cash. You know what he came with? An idea. Did God really say? And from the first culture to our culture, from Babel to modern day Australia, every culture by default is anti-God with the words of Satan, did God really say ringing in? So it is impossible to be friends with the world and friends with God at the same time. You cannot do it. One always wins and one always loses. The second thing is theological. You notice James uses the phrase adulterous people. He is picking up the idea that a Christian is united to Christ. That the church is married to Jesus Christ. But the problem is our eyes can start to wander and look elsewhere. Here's the thing, no one wakes up and says, today I'm going to commit adultery. It begins with small things, like a a distance from his spouse and finding someone who's different, interesting, appreciates you. And then small choices of staying back late or being in the same place or texting. And then before you know it, you're in bed with another. No one wakes up as a Christian and says, today I'm going to be enemies with God. But it begins with distance from God. And looking around and seeing an idea, a behavior, that looks good. That seems right. And small choices, like, I don't really need to go to church. It doesn't matter about the Bible. I don't need to obey that. And before you know it, you're in bed with the world. As verse 5 says, God, the Holy Spirit, who is in you as a Christian, doesn't want this to be so. He jealously longs for you to come back to Christ. Just as a a, a spouse has a right uh, jealousy for her spouse, so too God has a right jealousy for you to come back, to be faithful to him. He doesn't want you to be a follower of Jesus and then flirt with the culture around you. Say, oh yeah, I obeyed Christ, but really just obey whatever is in fashion. There was a lady I was talking to not that long ago. Her name is Jessica. And she had been a Christian for many years. And after a number of changes uh, that made with work and the place she lived, she found connecting a local church hard. Uh, she stopped reading the Bible. She distanced herself from a couple of Christian friends. And then one night, Friday night drinks in the city, she says, they're drinking too much, and, and, and a friend of hers said, hang on, aren't you religious? And she said, I used to be. And those words, Jessica says, they almost haunted her. And she couldn't shake them the next day, the next week, the next month, I used to be. What's she to do in a moment like that? What do you think God thinks of her in a moment like that? Have a look at verse 6. It is a cracker of a verse. But he gives us more grace. Whether you're realizing that the words and the fights you've engaged in have made an enemy of God, and harshly treated the people around you, whether you're realising you're becoming more and more friends with the world, God's response to you is more grace. More grace. A couple of weeks ago, I was getting the kids ready for breakfast, and I asked one of my children, can you just go get the cereal, bring it out here? No. And instantly within me, this anger built up, thinking, well, what, who do you think you are? Come here. You know, you, and just this anger came out, right? Like, it's not even a bad thing. It's cereal, right? That was my instant reaction. You know what God's instant reaction? When we say no? More grace. More grace. And that word more is very important, particularly if you've been a Christian for a while. Because you think, oh yeah, I know about Jesus' love. I know that He's gracious. And yet I still did this. And yet, I still think this. Surely His grace is expended. It's empty. No. More grace. You can never go too far to be out of God's gracious reach. The prodigal son who returns with his father's arms wide open. That just doesn't happen when you become a Christian. But again and again and again as God says, come home. Come to me. There's a danger here, isn't there? There's a danger for some of us to think God gives more grace. Phew, great. And get back to fighting now. Phew, get back to being friends of the world. Imagine a couple who are engaged, where he says to his fiance, So we're going to be married soon. Excited, we come into one another. Just wondering, how many other women can I kiss? And how many other women can I sleep with, Jacob? Ah, look, you're going to have many opportunities to be gracious to me, many opportunities to forgive me he's missed the point, right? And that relation is not going to go too well. After hearing about God's grace, God's love, James then turns to our responsibility. See, the more grace you have received, the more and more should prompt desire to obey him more and more. And so James highlights in conclusion to this part a whole bunch of things to do. What, what do you do next? You've heard of God's grace, That more grace, what are you to do now? Just go through them briefly. The first couple are to do with when you become friends with the world. What are you to do? Verse 7. Submit yourself then to God. This idea is this, that you need to have an active allegiance to God. So the world around you will say, believe this, do this. And if you don't, they'll turn on you. But the thing, if you're a follower of Jesus is, I want to Submit to God. Because you're changing bit by bit, whether you know it or not, to be more and more like the people around you. That is happening every day. But the question is this. When was the last time you changed what you think, what you do, after reading God's word, the Bible? Because that, revert, am I submitting myself to those around me or to God? second command he gives is this, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Active disloyalty to Satan, right? Remember the Satan that tempted Eve, did God really say? That same Satan tempted Jesus, did God really say? And that same Satan will tempt you, did God really say? And the only weapon that Jesus Christ had when he engaged in battle with Satan was this, the word of God. So are you clinging to it? Because if you are, Satan will wash his hands of you. The next thing he says is this, verse 8, come near to God and he will come near to you. At the end of last year, I was feeling a bit mm, distant and a bit frustrated with my good mate, Alex. I was feeling distant because he hadn't called me, he hadn't spoken for a while. I was feeling this, this anger, like, you know, forgotten about me? We've been friends for years. And this disappointment welled up. And then it dawned on me hang on. I haven't called him. I haven't seen how he's going. And the same can be when it comes to God. If God is feeling distant, out there, when was the last time you talked to him in prayer? When was the last time you listened to him through the Bible? When was the time you were around his people at church? Because in this moment now, I feel like I just want to highlight a new whiz-bang thing to connect you and God, right? To highlight, go to this national park, you'll be closer to God. Listen to this song, do this yoga position, right? But you know what? You know the way in which you come near to God? is the same way in which you come near to others. To grow in your relationship with God is the same way you go in a relationship with one another. Listen. Listen to the Bible. Talk, pray, and be around his people, church. Now those things don't just happen. You don't just drift into them. They're active choices and they take effort. But let's face it, relationships take effort, don't they? But here's the promise. I could have called my friend Alex, but I don't know if he's going to pick up. Maybe he's done with the friendship. But if you call God, You come near to him. He will come near to you, he promises. He will pick up every time. The final commands are to do with the battle within, our fights, our anger, our slander. See, when it comes to the things that we quarrel about, the things we fight, the things we get angry with, there's a temptation because we don't want to make ourselves vulnerable, because we don't want to admit to any selfish ambition that we have. We just ignore it and we squash it and we push it down. It's like a husband and wife who don't want to have that conversation, right? Because it makes them uncomfortable. That marriage is going to be more and more superficial as the days goes on. Two friends at church who are not dealing with the pattern of sin in their life, the fights that they've been having, the arguments, if they don't deal with it because it's awkward, that relationship is going to become more and more distant. But James doesn't want that. He doesn't want you to sweep it under the rug. You know what he wants you to do? Verse 8, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. In other words, repentance. Taking responsibility for what you have done, owning it, and saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No excuses, I'm sorry. The way I spoke to you, there is no excuse for. The way I treated you, I shouldn't have. I'm sorry. And you notice there, that these, they're not just words, right? Verse 9, grieve, mourn, wail, change your laughter to mourning, your joy to glory. When you apologize, do you mean it? Do you feel it? Or do you just say, yeah, sorry, just so we can move on? Because my pastor said so, you know. Or do you feel the, the sadness, the hurt that you've caused? And the only way to do that is think, what is life like on the other side of me? What are people experiencing on the other side of me? If you begin to address conflict and sin biblically, with repentance, then you will have a level of intimacy with those at church and those in your sphere and with God that you'd never had before. I mentioned at the beginning that that quote from that conference. I just want to change it slightly. A Christian is more prone to conflict than I think any other person. Do you expect it? Because every day is a day to battle the sin in your life. To battle, not to quarrel, not to fight, not to slander. Not to sit above God and his word. Not to obey the culture around me, be friends with it. Not to uh, to resist the devil, to draw near to him. To remind myself, more grace, more grace. A Christian is more conflict prone than any other person. Do expect it. What we're going to do now is, because the book of James is all about not just listening to the Word, but doing it, we're going to take a moment for you to think about what's a next step for you. On your seat, on your pew, you should have a card that looks like this and a pencil nearby. Grab those two things.